Hello and welcome and happy to use day as this is going well, I think, with David Cooper. I'm your host, David Cooper. It's This Is Going Well, I Think, the show where no one's listening and no one cares, the show where every show's the last one. Let's jump right in. We are joined by David Cooper and David Cooper. One of those Davids is me, the other currently the French horn player for the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, but he's got some changes coming along. I met David a long time ago. I wanted to do something really stupid where I interviewed other David Cooper. So I got a bunch of them, but he was by far the most special person I talked to, and we stayed in touch. And he's helped me through some pretty dark times. He's a very sweet man and an incredibly talented musician. He's got this energy for life. Talking to him, I don't know, I just feel alive. He's like an electric guy. And I think you're going to love this interview. Let's jump right in. The baby's crying. Hold on. I'm just going to go in the, in the room so the baby doesn't disturb our interview. She's uh, she's having a moment. She's uh, in her terrible twos, but she's only a year and a half. I get it. I get it, dude. Uh, but obviously this taping is more important than the, the happiness, well-being, and general security of your child, no? Hold on. Sorry, man. Is this better? Yeah, this is great. You want to get started? Yeah, man. Let's do it. Let's cheers. This is a little bit of uh, electrolytes. I'm I drink my uh, noon tablets in the morning. Yeah, you need those electronic lights. Otherwise, you're just going all analog. Please don't spit it out. Uh, oh, God. <laughs> and also, you're such an easy laugh. That wasn't even funny. Dude, you kill me, man. <laughs> that was so good. All right. So I want to talk about the second last time we spoke in person. The second last? It wasn't for a taping. It wasn't to do anything like this. I had just heard my show uh, working for Bell Media, that overnight radio show, how we met, got canceled. And I was feeling, I don't know, really down on myself. And for some reason, I thought I got to talk to you because for me, every time I talk to you, I get a new lesson in resiliency. And I was really negative about it. I was feeling down on myself. I was feeling like an idiot. Uh, and so I, I thought, OK, I got to call you. And I do call you. And it was only about a 10 minute call. And the first thing you said to me when I told you the show was canceled is you should be so proud of what you've accomplished. You should be so proud of all the work you've done. And that was exactly what I needed to hear because just like that, somehow you gave me a positive frame about losing a job that I couldn't see but was also so simple. So thank you for doing that, David. David, you know, it's uh, my pleasure. Um, you know, just to share this journey and just to walk this walk with you, you know, I feel like we're on this path. We're not walking parallel, but we are. It's like one highway that we're on together. I completely agree, uh, and I want to talk to you about about that. I want to talk to, about, to you about what you're doing now and what happened or what's going on with Chicago. Wow. So, um, listen, I'm not going to get into a lot of specifics, but my job ended in Chicago. And just like me, your whole life you were working towards this label. You wanted to be the, the principal horn at the Chicago Symphony. And in some sense, you did it. In some sense, you achieved did it. Did I ever show you this thing? Oh, I don't know if I have it down here. I made a poster. Of course. You have a poster of that job, and you put it on your wall. Yeah, and that would be my reason for waking up. And, uh, you know, I think I kind of was like, all right, this is what I have to do. This is what I have to do. And I did it. 
And then when I got to it, I was like, okay, okay, I'm here. I don't feel any different, but I'm here. I'm doing it. And what I realized is there's this track record of like, okay, just showing up, just doing the next right thing. And then, you know, you act yourself into right thinking. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like you don't feel like the guy, but you're going to work as the guy. And then after doing the work for a number of months or a number of years, you're like, hey, I'm the guy. Let me draw the parallel here because I didn't put the poster of me as a radio personality on the wall. I was kind of the opposite of you. I was too scared to admit that that was a job that I wanted when I had a day job in a regular industry. I was working in tech. So I would like cry in my therapist's office just when the thought that I could possibly be a radio personality and have a paying radio job was something that I wanted. And through years of work and and eventually I quit my job in tech. And then I get the label. I'm the thing that I wanted to be. I could tell people I was a radio personality. I could tell people I worked for a network. I could tell people I had a show. And then all of a sudden they yank, just like some organization yanks the label from you. Yeah. And what they can't take away is what you've learned, what you've accomplished, what you've done, what they can't take away from me. And what I didn't lose when I lost that job was, I don't know, the thousand, the 1500 hours of professional experience where I grew my craft. Yeah. Uh, But just like you, and I don't know, I mean, this is my words, not yours. Maybe you have a different frame for it. I lost the label and I had a bit of a crisis of identity for still going through it. Oh my God. I can so relate. Yeah. Cause I mean, you know, for me, it comes down to like, I am this, I am David Cooper, principal horn of the Chicago symphony. And then no longer do I have it. And it's like, how do I see myself? How do, how do others see my, see me? Am I a failure? Like, what does this mean about me? Why did I lose it? Why did this happen? And I go through all these whys and it doesn't, necessarily do me any good. And what I realized today is I was beating myself up over a lot of these outcomes. You know, I was, and what I wasn't looking at is like, okay, what did I, like, what did I gain? And how can I let myself off the hook without being, you know, beating myself up? Right. And where can I learn? Right. Like maybe there were some things where, you know, I like to put a lot on my plate. Maybe I had too much other stuff on my plate. Maybe sometimes, Or maybe I cut it a little too close when I was getting backstage, you know, like, you know, those type of things. Maybe how can I, what are one or two things I could improve on in my next experience? So like when I take that experience, it's like, okay, it's not wasted. It's like, I'm learning from that. You also achieved your goal. And so did I, like I had a show. Yeah. And you were the principal horn for the Chicago symphony orchestra and so it's a bit of a strange thing where it's like you work towards the thing you achieve the thing and then you lose the thing who are you oh well i'll tell you i can things they can't take away from me um they can take my title they can take my salary but they can't take my love of music they can't take my love of the french horn they can't take my attitude right no one can take that from you is what I've observed. You've got the best fucking attitude out of anyone I've ever met. And yes, we can swear because this is a podcast. I'm not saying you have to swear, but we can. Your love of the work and your good attitude, they can't, your outlook, they can't take. Yeah. And they can't take my contentment. That's something that I give away, right? That's what I need to remember is like, okay, if I'm unhappy, what about me is not allowing myself to accept this? What about myself is like, how am I wasting time on not accepting this? Like those feelings take energy, right? Yeah. Like 
instead of just saying like this is you know black or white whatever this is this is the situation and i'm not going to have any feelings about it but i'm going to allow that energy to go into the work for the next thing and it's super hard to do just to be completely you know cut off those feelings cut off that you know I took, I mean, I still maintained a little bit of work. Like I was still, I still work for this network. I do appearances on their evening show. It's not my show. It's someone else's show. So I did kind of a bare minimum to keep my career on track, but I kind of took six months off and that was a scary thing because. Where'd you go? I, I just, I was, I retreated. I was home. I was feeling agoraphobic. I was feeling sorry for myself. I worked so hard for that label media personality and I worked so hard to maintain it. Yeah, I, I didn't handle the crisis of identity well. I, I, I Maybe I should have reached out to you sooner. You reached out to me in March, and I was really fucking low. You left me a voicemail, mm. and I have it. I'm going to play it for you because it's just, to me, such a good example of, of you. But I, I couldn't even listen to it for two weeks. And then when I did listen to it, it brought tears to my eyes because it's like, this is the outlook I need to have. Why was I scared to even listen to that? It was a motivating voicemail. Can I play it for you? Yeah, please. I don't, I don't remember it. Is this too heavy for you? Is this, is what I'm doing right now too heavy for you, David? I, I love it. Okay. I needed this. Good, good. We'll keep going. Here's the voicemail you sent me in March when I was like wanting to launch a podcast. It took another three, three months to do it. I, this is kind of out of nowhere too. You just sent me this. Cooper, what's up, man? How's it going? I uh, just wanted to say hello. I'm thinking about you. Uh, I applied for a teaching position at a university. What? <laughs> and when I was in the middle of teaching students, um, a light bulb exploded in the theater where I was teaching, and my class went all over the floor. It was the craziest thing. Anyways, I just wanted to say what's up. Thinking of you, man. I'm here to cheer you on in whatever you do. I know you can do it. You're one of the most smart, persistent, um, capable people I know, and uh, I can't wait to see where your career lands you uh, or what path you take. Uh, keep on trucking, brother. Talk to you soon. Bye. That was very sweet, David. You know what I'm going to say. You called me smart, persistent, and capable, and I was going to say there must be something wrong with your brain. None of that is true. But all jokes aside, it was just such a sweet thing to hear, and I didn't know that you taking a teaching position meant that you were like going on to the next chapter in your life. So we're both kind of doing this at the same time, and when I was prepping for this interview, the light bulb went off. I'm like, I, I, we're different people. Our experiences are different, but this idea of like losing a label, if it's just as simple as like, okay, Principal Horn, Chicago Symphony, me, host of Overnight Radio Show uh, on, on Commercial Network, it's just, it's, it's interesting to me that this happened at the same time and we have the same name. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of synchronicity, right? It's like, again, fate brought us together for whatever reason. Well, I was wanted to make a stupid radio segment where I interviewed people with the same name as me. And then I just had a bunch of weird interviews. And then all of a sudden I had you and I was just, yeah, I, I've been kind of like enamored by you ever since. You've just got this amazing outlook, got this amazing journey and you're an extremely talented musician. <laughs> I have fun at it. I really do. But, you know, I also that, you know, jokes aside, I work really hard. I know. Just like you. And I think that parallel, you know, when you see someone who's like passionate and works really hard and, you know, persistent, you know, meaning like you don't give up just because one door closes. It doesn't mean you stop. I feel guilty with you calling me persistent because I really kind of crumbled from November to May. But, but look, you didn't. 
you're here doing it now. I know, but I had this, not only a crisis of identity, like who am I? I don't have this job anymore and I'm not doing the work. And the thing that I always say, the thing that I pay lip service to is no matter what happens, I love the work. And there I was only doing a bare minimum of the work for six months. That was tough. But you did it, right? In the timeline of, you know, David Cooper, the radio host, right? This is like the grain of sand or grain of rice on that timeline. Yeah. And you did enough work. You didn't stop. You didn't quit. You made progress forward, incremental bits of progress, even though it wasn't the same amount, right? And it led you to this place here today, which has your own podcast, which where you can talk and you can have your own, you know, your own guidelines, your own periphery, your own, you know, your own voice. Yeah, it's scary at first. All those limitations that a that a network puts on you, you can't swear, you can't do anything inappropriate, like uh, certain political topics you can't talk about. Well, commercial breaks, right? Even the time, you know, like you're like, hey, we have to go to a commercial break announcing my guest, you know, and let's wrap it up. You know, it's, you don't have those. We can just talk and where the conversation goes. And now, so like there aren't, you know, it's a blank canvas. Okay. I've been talking a lot about me, my journey, my parallels with you. Tell me about the teaching gig. So you that you you aren't playing with the orchestra anymore. Do they still kind of call you every now and again or? No, no, no. So listen, um, I mean, I'm finishing my contract and I'm going to do the best I can to finish, you know, the best job I can possibly do. I want to leave on a high note. What are we thinking? The high F above like three octaves above C or is it, what are we talking? What's the highest note you can play? Whatever, you know, Freddie Mercury, you know, like I that. Think, I think after, you know, the last piece of your last day, everything goes silent and it comes to like, a, you know, the very end of it. Just play the highest note you can when the conductor goes just before the applause. Uh, do you think you'll get in trouble for that? What are they going to do? <laughs> no, I mean, no, I, what I want to do is I want to leave on the best possible standard. I want to leave my standard high and I want to do the best job I can until my last day. Yeah. And that's what I can can control. Right. I can control what I bring to the job, my attitude, again, my contentment. Um, so those things, what I can control, not outcomes, not a title, not what other people think about me, but I can control, you know, the things that I can't control. And I'm going to do that to the best of my ability because that's my answer to feeling not happy with what happened. Right. I'm not happy that I have to leave Chicago. This is my home. This is my dream. Right. Yeah. But you know what? I can tell you two years, three years down the road, I might look back and say, this is the best thing that ever happened. That's so tough. When you're in the thick of it and you're in some event that has led you to be very unhappy, you know in the future you're going to look back and say, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. Because those other awful events that happened to you, those crushing failures, those rejections, uh, like some of the worst things in my life I point to and I say, that's the best thing that ever happened to me. Because if that didn't happen, I wouldn't be here today. And I'm happy with who I am and where I'm at. Well... No, and that's that's the thing that is like, okay, I have track records of quote unquote failures, right? Like, so I can see in my career when it feels like the worst possible thing that's going to happen to you. You're just like, oh my gosh, I can't live through this. This is terrible. And then somehow you come out and you, you know, you're under pressure and then you come out and you're, you transform and you're even better in than you thought you would be. You're uh, stronger than you thought you'd be. You trust yourself more than you thought you would. And uh, you've got more empathy. Yeah. You know, because you've been through these tough moments and you, you see other people when they're going through tough moments, you're like, hey, I know what that's like. True. 
I know it's tough, but I can I can help you through this because I know when I felt like that, I didn't think I'd get through it, but I did, and it's better. But somehow, when you're in a moment where you think, I'm going to look back, and I'm actually going to think this is a positive thing, you know, I'm going to think this is the best thing that ever happened to me. Like, for example, me, them canceling my show is the best thing that ever happened to me. I know in the future I'll probably think that, but right now I, I have like a failure of imagination. <laughs> uh, oh, so, my yeah, gosh. That's kind of where I'm at. I just, I see you as being so free now. Yeah. You know, I see you and you're, you're going to have more freedom to do, you know, to explore, to progress, to transform and same with me. Right. So like, uh, I'll go back to the career stuff. So I never thought I'd be a professor. I never thought I'd teach at a university. And like that thought of giving up my horn playing as an orchestral player was like really kind of um, scary and um, maybe a little disappointing. I was like, I always knew I was going to do it, but I didn't want to do it now. Like, well, I feel like I'm at the top of my game. And so I auditioned uh, for this teaching position. I ended up um, getting the teaching position and I was like really excited about going there. And then um, I'd already committed to doing a couple job interviews and orchestral auditions. And so I said, what the heck, I'll just finish these out. And, you know, um, one was for associate principal horn in LA, which I ended up winning. I'm not surprised. I'm also not surprised you got a teaching job, which are hard to get, and you weren't in the academic track. You just show up. There's people who are trying to get these teaching jobs for years, and that's their whole life track. You just show up, having walked away from the symphony or, or in the process of walking away, and you get it. It doesn't surprise me, David. But what was the third job? Well, uh, third is um, I, it's still kind of up in the air. I have a trial as principal horn with the San Francisco Symphony. I lived there for 10 years. I'll, I'm going there in August. I mean, if you're living there, I will see you on the regular. I, I visit California all the time. I'm going back in September for a wedding, so. Hey, man, can I finally get my hug in person? Yeah, I have been dying to meet you. I just, I feel like Chicago is just, maybe because it's I'm from Toronto and I, li and I live in New York. It's like between those two cities, you get enough of like what Chicago's about. Not really, but it's like not a place I'm going to go. Toronto is like Canadian uh, Chicago. Yeah, I mean, it, it misses the mark on a few things where Chicago just excels, like architecture and I don't know, but it is kind of like a Canadian Chicago. You're absolutely right. Yeah, no, but what it does exceed in is uh, food. That yeah. town is that. mad restaurants, like yeah. every kind of, you know, from like hole in the wall, mon pot. And it's such a, a diverse city. And it's so multicultural in kind of a blooming way that a lot of cities in the U.S. aren't, or if they claim to be multicultural, they're not quite there. Uh, so you get just not only great food, but such a wide range of it, and, and it's all good. Yeah, it's really, really a food town. I mean, I was well, I was blown away when I went there. I was like, holy crap. So San Francisco. I mean, I mean, it is kind of like more new American style, all those great restaurants. It's not as diverse, but San Francisco's got some of the best food in the in the country, I think. Well, all right. All right, then. So, yeah, man, um, I ended up having to, you know, pass along on the teaching position, by the way. Um, I had to kind of, um, you know, say, listen, like, I'm not able to do the teaching position and um, do the, the orchestral thing. So I figured, you know, maybe this is my opportunity to um, go into a different aspect of um, an orchestra. So you're like in the position of playing LA and SF off of each other. That's like the classic California rivalry right there. You know, uh, I, I'm just kind of finding which one's the better fit for me uh, and my family. I choose LA. <laughs> LA is a nice lifestyle. I choose LA. It's kind of boring. It's spread out. There's a lot of traffic. 
But you'll have a nice little home in a nice little neighborhood with a driveway and a yard. SF is very dense and very small, mm. you know, and, and it's chaos there. It's like a lot of people, a lot of poverty, unfortunately. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a more interesting, more highly charged city than, than L.A. But L.A., I think, is a nicer lifestyle for a family. But that's just my opinion. Well, there's benefits to both, right? Um, and uh, we're just going to have to kind of, um, you know, right now I only have a um, position in LA. So that's where we're going, you know? Um, and I'm extremely happy that I have something to go to. I'm extremely happy that I get to keep playing the horn. Um, you know, it's, all right, so I'm going to back up. When I went out to LA um, for the audition, you know, there's this little voice inside of you this this thing i don't know it's like right here do you you know it's like your heart your gut when i went out for that audition i was listening to my gut and it said yes it's the weirdest thing to say but it's like you just trust your gut it's this tiny little voice that just feels like you know light and open or tense and hard and like you know like and i felt when i went out there i was like this feels right this feels right in my gut and i just I'd never listened to that before. And it was the first time. And I remember I auditioned the first day. Um, and then I took a, a couple days. There was a day or two or a day in between. And then the next day was the audition, the final audition. And I just felt so calm when I was auditioning. Um, just felt like this is right. Sometimes we feel like imposters, but you're not an imposter. It's not surprising to me that you were calm. You know what you're doing, David. Yeah. Well, this, this particular one. And, uh, after the audition, they, um, you know, they took me out for lunch and then the, the guy, you know, I'll equate this to a, a boat, you know, like, um, captain of the ship. And, um, there's a captain of the horn section and I'd be the first mate, you know, in LA. And so the captain is this guy, Andrew, um, and he's, you know, super charming, uh, really, you know, a terrific player, great guy. He's Australian. And, um, uh, he took me to the airport, which I couldn't believe. I was like, oh, my gosh, man, this guy, you know, he's already got my back from day one. And, you know, so there's something something about that where it just felt it felt really good. So I'm really grateful to be in that situation and uh, and also to get to watch him. Right. Like maybe whatever piece that was missing for me to really excel in Chicago, um, I'm going to learn yeah, this motherfucker probably knows what he's doing, you know? Even if you're better at some things, he's probably better at some things, and you have a lot to learn from me. What's really funny to me is you tell me this narrative. What I'm hearing is you're not 100% decided, but if you should decide to go to L.A., uh, your coworkers would be a big part of it, working with those people. Is that my understanding? Am I correct? Absolutely. What's so funny to me about that is there's so many tropes in, like, traditional workplaces, like, go to the company that has the coworkers that you like, like... Having me worked in tech, I've chosen a job over my manager and my, my would-be manager and my would-be peers. And when people think of like orchestras and symphonies, we think of them with this, I don't know, this sort of mystique with this sort of like the people who work there are all sort of heroes and amazing. And, and it's just funny that when you talk about selecting a job, it's very much the same as it would look like if you were just taking a regular corporate job. Wow. Uh, and I find that comes up in workplaces like 
I was I worked for a radio network and all the inner inner workplace drama was exactly the same as you'd have at any boring job. Yeah. Uh, and I just find that so funny. Like I imagine like professional basketball players when they get in like professional disagreements with the coach. It just if you actually look at the way these workplaces function, it's all kind of boring and all kind of the same. Even if the work is really interesting and special, that's funny to me. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, I think from the outside looking at a perfect example is that last week I was uh, doing some chamber music in uh, Rockport, Massachusetts. And I went out for the Rockport Chamber Music Festival. And, uh, you know, one of my friends said, man, this must just be like absolute, like the dream. It must be heaven to play chamber music with all these people like all the time. And I said, you know, it really is great to play the music and it's really great to like, you know, have the concerts, but like while you're coming together, it's a lot of compromise. It's a lot of adjustments. It's a lot of kind of like saying, how much does this really matter to me? And how much can that take a backseat to me? And how much can I live and just let live, right? It's like you're in a, you're at the room in an ad agency trying to decide what ads you're going to sell to your client. And you're like, oh, I want this color to be blue. I want this color to be red. It's just yeah. so funny that these, these ways that we deal with each other play out the same, whether it's doing something amazing, like playing chamber music or doing something rather regular, like just having a corporate job where you just kind of do boring stuff that other people do. That's so funny to me. I, I see it everywhere. And I just, I, I guess that's just human nature, the way that we deal with others when we're working with them. It's kind of the same no matter what we're doing. Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, the, the place where I'd like to, you know, take this interview is like resiliency. Yeah, I, I do too. Because there's something I learned, even though I've known it for a very long time. I don't know if I'm right in doing this, but I equate resiliency with bravery. Mm. And I often think about when I started doing stand-up comedy. I look back at those moments in my life and I think I was really brave. Why am I not feeling brave now? And then I remember how I felt in those moments. Ooh. Yeah. I did not feel brave at all. I felt cowardly. I felt like I was going to fail. I felt like I should walk away. I felt like I couldn't bear to do another show. But what made it brave and what made me resilient is that despite those feelings, I did it anyway. It's not that I woke up one morning and, and I was like, oh, I'm a brave person. I do anything I want. I'm brave. It's no, I woke up the same as I am today and I did the thing that scared me, even though it scared me and it scared me while I did it. I felt like a coward while I was doing it. To me, that's what bravery and resiliency are. And I had to like relearn that lesson in the last month as I started doing the show. Well, they, they talk about um, courage is not being the absence of fear. It's realizing that you're afraid and walking through it anyways. That's what courage is. And you just described that perfectly. Um, you know, the hardest part for me was like worrying about what other people thought about me and realizing that like, hey, you know, I'm not any less or any more than I was because I don't have this title. And, you know, it also doesn't matter, right? Like what matters is like what I think of myself and I, what I think about myself is based on my effort. You know, it's like me showing up, me being available, me doing the work, right? That's where I derive my self-esteem from because I'm doing this stuff that I know I should be doing, right? Or I feel, you know, like that I feel compelled to do. Like if I'm not, if I made a goal of like, hey, I'm going to, you know, do 10 push-ups every day or whatever, and I don't do 10 push-ups every day, I'm not going to feel good about myself. But if I do 10 push-ups or maybe even 15 push-ups, then I'm going to feel like, hey, I did it. I'm like, you know, I'm 
sticking to my word. I'm being true to myself. It's congruency, right? Of like what I want to be doing and what my actions are doing, right? Yeah, what I'm hearing is it's like you got the title, the label, and then you got the work. Yeah. We tie up our identities on the title, the label, the recognition, but where we should tie up our identity and what our deepest desire is to tie up the identity and the work itself, right? Mm, Yeah, and I think sometimes the title uh, is an outward way to express that, like, okay, I've worked really hard. I'm at this level. Don't you see I have this title, right? Yeah. But it, it doesn't mean that. If you don't have that title, it doesn't mean that, like, you're not at a level. It doesn't mean that you're not doing the work. It just means that you're not in this one organization, and that's and that's it. I'm not so into self-help books, but I've read all of Stephen Pressfield's, and in one of his books, he quotes a Hindu text uh, I, I'm going to butcher the name of this. I think it's called Bhagavad Gita. I was talking about it on my show earlier, but it's a very simple quote. It's that you have the right to work, but you don't have the right to the fruits of the work. Or you have the right to labor, but you don't have a right to the fruits of the labor. And if I compare it to what you're saying, the fruits of the labor are the title. Yeah. The labor is playing, you're sitting down and playing your fucking horn. Yeah. You don't have a right to that label, even though it feels good, even though it communicates to others, this is all the hard work I've done, I've accomplished this, I feel good, I get the validation. You have no right to it. It can be taken away at any time. Yeah. But the thing that you do have a right to, I mean, I guess I suppose someone could run over your horn with a truck, but in a practical sense, you have a right to wake up every morning and play that thing. Yeah, man. It's a great quote. I'm not particularly religious. I don't particularly love religion. But that quote from those Hindu texts is, is like, I've, I've said it on the show before. I love it because when you're distracted by a blow to the ego, yeah. you have to remember that the things that were making you arrogant or the things that were feeding your ego, you had no right to all along. Oh, you know, like, all right. So you, you said you're not particularly religious, but like, Man, I have to say, like, over the past few months, like, I was in such a low place. I was, like, willing to do anything to get me out of it, right? You know, and one of the things that got me out of it was, like, well, you know, my dad went to Vietnam and, you know, it is what it is, right? Like, he, while he was over there, a lot of guys were finding drugs. And then he actually, like, uh, he found religion. And so, I was like, I'll just give it a try. You know, my dad got through Vietnam, you know, by going to church. Like, you know, worst thing I can do is, like, this is one of the toughest moments of my life. Maybe I can go to church and get something out of it. And, you know, it got me through. You know, I'm not saying, like, I'm not trying to preach to anybody. But, man, having something that you feel like cares about you, that feels like is comforting. You know, I used to look at that as, like, a sign of weakness or a sign of, like, you know. Not at all. You know, and it's, you know. I have nothing to say to that from my point of view in terms of my belief. But what I have to say to that is it sounds like it helped you. It sounds like it helped your father. Yeah. And I think that's wonderful. And I'm not, I'm not here to tell you that's wrong or take it away. I'm saying my belief system, my outlook, it, it's not quite compatible. But I, I have no, well, when people use religion to do wicked things, yes, I would seek to take that away from them. But when they're using it as just a tool to help them or, or a belief system that's kind of harmless and, and really is a, a personal thing, I have like, I have, it's not, I have no issues with that. I'm not here to tell you that's not true. I used to be offended by the God word. It was like the worst. It was like a four letter word. It was like, you know. I was just quoting Hindu texts to you. So like, I, I'm an atheist, but I, I think there's a lot of good elements to religion. You know, I don't have any way to say it's like this or it's that, but I just know that it made me feel at peace. And if it's if it helped me get through this moment where I didn't know that there was hope at the end of the tunnel, it was like, oh, 
you know, like meditation. It like gives me that, you know, pause before I speak. Yeah. Right? It gives me that calm, you know, to like wait and act as opposed to react. I could do with a little calm, David. I'm a high strung individual. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know what to say other than the way you're describing it to me sounds kind of wonderful. And that's all I'll say to that. I, if you want to like ask me questions about why I don't believe it, I'll give answers. But I have no no desire to go down that road. All I'm saying is what I'm hearing from you and what I'm hearing from your dad's story is religion is a kind of a wonderful and helpful tool. And I accept that. And I'm not telling you you're wrong. That's it. No, that and that's that's awesome, man. I just uh, I, ha- I hate atheists who the second they hear someone believes or the second they hear there's some good from belief, they want to explain why it's wrong. I'm not here to do that. All I can say is like, dude, like, all right, isn't it random that we both have the same name? We're both dealing with loss at the same time, but then we're also like, you know, kind of hatching from this egg and becoming like, you know, this amazing, you know, new version of ourselves with, you know, all the, in technicolor, whatever you want to say. And it's like, we're walking this path together and we're both talking about it. We're both talking about, hey, what gets us through it? I don't know, man. I just think that, that there's it, there's a lot of coincidence in this. It's pretty random and it's pretty darn cool. And I really like the journey. Yeah, me too. Uh, and, and I really appreciated that voicemail you sent me because I just needed someone to tell me, to remind me of who I was to them. I'm generally convinced I'm none of those nice things you said about me. That's something I work on. That's something that I, I mean, as part of my shtick, I'll always tell people I suck. I'll, I always pretend there's one listener to the show. Good evening, listener, singular intended. You know, I, I kind of, as a shtick, I'm very down on myself. But internally, it's a struggle that I'm, I'm working on and doing way better with now than ever. Um, but in that, in that moment when I got the voicemail, I was really ne- in a negative place. And so it's like, okay, here's, someone I respect and they think things about me that are pretty positive yeah. and it's like reminds you of who you could be. And, and I just appreciate it. I was just thinking like, Hey, like I feel that same way and I want to unpack it. Why do I feel like, like I I'm, I'm not good enough. Is it because I don't meet my expectations? Is it because I'm not perfect? You know, it's, it's the weirdest thing. Cause I know, I mean, really logically we know we'll never be perfect. Right. I know when I was a kid, if I ever said like, hey, if I achieve this thing, I'm going to feel great about myself. But then you achieve it and it still doesn't change how I feel on the inside, right? Like if I become principal of the Chicago Symphony, I'm going to feel great about myself on the inside. And, you know, what it tells me is that like these outward situations don't determine my inside value. Everywhere you go, there you are. I know it's a cliche, but... You know, if you're if you're feeling a certain way before you achieve your dream, you're probably going to feel that way when you achieve it, too. Yeah. Or shortly after. Right. You know, you achieve it and then you, shortly after you feel that way. But, you know, like when I um, when I reach out to you and I leave voicemails and I say, like, hey, man, I just want you to know that I think you're awesome. I think you're doing great things. And, you know, whatever might be going on in my life, it seems a little less important because I'm thinking about you. Right. It's like for that one moment, I'm not thinking about myself. And when I don't think about myself, I get a little bit of relief. You know, it's like simple. I could stand to be less of a narcissist and take a page out of your book for sure. <laughs> oh, it's not it's not natural, my friend. It's like, you know, I've, I've had to cultivate it. But it's, um, you know, one of those things that I just do because it's like, you know, I obviously I care about you. But it also I know that it's like, you know, by giving, I receive even more than I by getting what about people who you know need that encouragement but their output i mean obviously 
I'm not really on your plane of like, I'm going to evaluate your output. You're not in this field. But imagine you're like, there's a student who you hear them and you're like, this person is tone deaf. There is, they can't keep a tempo. There is no level of hard work. The best they could be is ever okay. Like they don't have the aptitude and they need that encouragement, but you know, they suck. What do you do? <laughs> you lie? <laughs> or do you believe that no one truly sucks? Anyone can be great if they put in the work. Uh, I think that's a stretch, you know? I, I, the truth is, I kind of believe that. Maybe not everyone, but I think most people could be great if they put in the work, uh, no matter what they do. I'm 5'8". I'll never be able to dunk on a basketball court. Sure. Right? Like, there's just things that, like, if you don't have certain skills, you're never going to be able to compete at that level, right? At the NBA level. I'll be a great free thrower if I spend hours and hours and hours a day. You're not going to go to the Olympics for uh, skeet shooting if you're blind. You know, you're not going to be able to, uh, you know, there's so many things that you can't do because there's physical limitations. So, I mean, I truly believe that, like, the if you're tone deaf or you, you know, those that's a, a physical aptitude like you know you can match picture you can't yeah and to learn that thing i think is like it, you it could be developed but the how much work is it going to take and how much is it going to take for you to become on the same par as someone who naturally has that ability and then to surpass them it's a lifetime to catch up so it'll never happen yeah exactly like i could probably learn how to dunk and it was put to me i can only be the best david cooper i can be Anything else is going to be a second-rate copy of Dale Clevenger or Dennis Brain or you know Herman Bauman or Roddick Babarik, right? I'm just going to be a second-rate copy. So why not embrace me, be the best version of me, and work to become the best version of whatever that is? So back to your question, are there students who maybe don't have that? And how do you deal with your constant encouragement telling them that, you know, how do you, you just lie or you just tell them, what do you do? Well, I think sometimes being honest is the best form of um, caring. I'm secretly asking because you often compliment me as a performer. So I'm secretly asking what would you do if the person was actually shit? Because I want to know what you would do if I was shit. You, okay. So, you know, well, I wouldn't, you know, if it was you and me, I wouldn't be hanging out with you if I didn't respect you. <laughs> okay. I know you're, you're a busy man. You have a family. You give me your time and I appreciate it. No, and I and I think you're doing something great. I think you you work really hard at it. I think you you have a goal. You're passionate, and that's the kind of thing that I want to encourage: is passion, enthusiasm, hard work. And so, when I talk to a student who might not have that in the horn, you just say, like, "Listen, here's what I see. Here's what I need. You know, or, or here's what I think you would need to be successful. And here's the amount of work I think it's going to take." It's up to you if you are willing to do that work. But if these, this and this aren't met, I don't see, you know, a result, you know, of a career. And you're just honest about that. But you also say, like, if you really love music, there are other ways to be part of it and to encourage the craft. Like, you know, it's something I could say to a student who might not be talented is like, hey, like, listen, we need people who help with the concerts, right? Who set up, you know, who talk to artists, talk to management, who, you know, meet with donors, who, you know, send out the emails, coordinating schedules. Maybe you're great at that stuff and I'm not, you know? Yeah. And, and that, unfortunately the state of the business right now without donor, like the, there's so many people that are critical to the functioning of an orchestra that don't play music. Yeah, absolutely. And so, 
everything that, you know, like the NBA is, wouldn't be that if we didn't have the guy who's holding the microphone or the guy who's, you know, running the cameras or the guy who's just, you know, running the tech feed. So what I want to do is I want to encourage people to find what they love and I want them to do the work regardless of if you feel like it or not. And that's, I think, what it gets back to is like, you know, some people say love the process, enjoy the process. Um, I've been listening to this book by um, Tim Grover. Uh, do you know this guy? No, tell me about it. So this book, it's called Relentless by Tim S. Grover. And then there's another book on winning. It says, what? what is the, the subtitle there or the tagline? It says, from good to great to unstoppable. When I first moved to New York, my parents, they think they're like these society Jews who knows people. They don't. Uh, but they're like, we're going to introduce you to people in show business and media in New York. I'm like, okay, who do you know? Finally, after months of me bugging them, kind of as a joke, because I know they don't know anyone, they say, okay, we can get you a phone call with Rick Moranis. <laughs> because my dad's best friend's ex-wife is Rick Moranis' sister. Okay, something like uh, sister's brother's half-cousin. So I get on the phone with him, and he actually used to do radio. That's before he got into TV on it. Yeah. That, oh, what is that? SCTV or whatever? Yeah, yeah. Oh, hey, Bob. Hey. Hey, Doug, how's it going? Oh, good, eh? Take off, eh, you hoser? <laughs> Look at you. You know a thing or two about Canada. So he's he did radio before he went into television and then movies, uh, and he did radio at the same station that my show was, uh, the, like the station that we were syndicated out of. So I get on the phone with him, and the first he this, keep in mind, this man hasn't worked for 20 years. He, re he retired to take care of his family when his wife died because he knew he couldn't be an actor. That's why he's disappeared. Wow. He knew that he couldn't act and give himself to acting, and raise his family. So when his wife sadly passed rather young, he just quit. Yeah, because I haven't seen him. He was one of my favorite actors in the 90s. I mean, he was an absolute lovely guy. The first thing that happens when I get on the phone with him is he tries to talk me out of trying to make a career in radio. And I'm like, dude, with all due respect, uh, that's not going to happen. And then he's like, what would happen if you lost every opportunity you had, if the, the media company that you're working with, they took away your show? Like, what would happen if all of that ha happened? Like, what would you do? And I said... Basically, I would do this. I would do a podcast. I would keep working. And then he's like, then you're unstoppable. And I'm like, gee, thanks. Rick Moranis just called me unstoppable. And he's like, you're unstoppable by definition, because no matter what happens to you, you're not going to stop working. And he's like, the only reason I tried to talk you out of it is because who am I? I'm just Rick Moranis. You don't know me. If I can talk you out of this passion of yours... This was never a passion of yours, and you shouldn't be doing it all along. Wow. Uh, so that was that was my call with him. And I just, I, when you showed me this motivational book about being unstoppable, I thought about how Rick Moranis called me unstoppable, and it was maybe the best moment of my life. Yeah. Man, honestly, that reminds me of my first horn lesson back from when I, I quit the horn in 2004. Um, I stopped playing horn from 2004 until um, kind of early on in 2005. Yeah, so the first lesson was with this professional whose CD I had growing up. I really looked up to him. And uh, he said, um, if you don't have to play the horn, you should quit. Mm -hmm. He's like, and I, I was 21, 21 at the time. Yeah, I was, I was 21. And he said, listen, like, you know, unless you absolutely have to do this, please don't, because it's really hard to make a living at it. It's really hard to, um, you know, there's not many opportunities. The level is really high. You know, it's it, it's more than just a job. You have to do it all day. And I and I just remember thinking like this, 
I was like, I have to do this. I'm sorry. There's no other, there's no other yeah. way for me to do this. I, I am here because I have to do this. It's like in my, it's calling me from my spirit, you know, from my soul. And uh, he goes, okay, then you do it, you know? And uh, yeah, I remember he asked me like, um, he asked me a couple personal questions that really touched a nerve, but he said, you know, it's about what you do from here on out. Right? It's not about what happened to you in the past. It's what, what you do and how you fuel this thing. I'll never forget that lesson was what I needed. But then he also told me, you know, you have something like special. You have something unique. You have something that's worth developing. You have something that's worth refining. That was kind of the boost that I needed to really throw myself into gear. And I only took one lesson with him. I never went back. But that was the seed that I needed to really drive me into action to find a teacher that really, um, you know, that I really wanted to work with like week in, week out and, and do it. And then six months later, I was, you know, playing in a professional orchestra. That's so funny. When I was mulling over, I mean, it's a little later in life for me. I was maybe 34. When I was mulling over quitting my corporate job to try to make it in broadcasting, I called my cousin who's in show business in Los Angeles. And he just said, I think I was looking for someone to talk me out of it because I, I have made a good salary at this job, like a great, I'm never going to make that much money in radio. And uh, I think I was trying to get him to talk me out of it because he's like the only creative I knew in my family. And he just said, I got one question for you. Do you have to do this? It's exactly like you just described it to me. I took a second to think about it, but I just said, yes, like I, I do. And he's like, well, then you, why are you talking to me? You're going to quit your job, <laughs> like quit your job. He's like, if you had said no, I would have said, don't quit your job under any circumstances. That's insane. But even if I tell you to quit your job, you're going to anyway. So why are you even talking to me? It was great advice. It was kind of what I needed to hear just to have that question asked to me, just like it was asked to you. Do you have to do this? This is the, the very reason I quit stand up because it's a grind. It's a lot of work. Bombing sucks. It's impossible to make it. It's very hard to make money. Everyone I know in stand up, less one or two people is not successful. They have day jobs. It's a horrible grind. It's awful. It's terrible. It's one of the worst creative pursuits you can do in terms of just the experience of it, the way you're treated when you're a beginner, when you're an intermediate, getting booked, how much money you make, getting booked, how the comedy clubs treat you when you're not. But man, that five minutes in front of an audience. It's fun, but I didn't have to do it, David. But I have friends. I describe how horrible it is to them. And they're like, I don't care. I have to do this. And they're still doing stand up. It's like that for really any creative pursuit or maybe even non-creative pursuits as well. If you have a calling, this, the question is simple. Do you feel like you have to do it? And if the answer is yes, then what, like you need to do something about it. It's not a question of, of whether you need to do it. It's are you going to do what you need to do about it or not? Yeah. And back to this book, right? Okay. So the, the lesson in this book is whether you feel like it or not, you have to get up and you have to do the work. It's not... You know, it's like, you know, comparable to losing weight, right? It's not about I'm done when I've dropped 20 pounds, right? And then you go back to eating like you did. And then you gain that weight and maybe some extra. It's like you recognize that this is a lifestyle. I'm committed to this lifestyle. And this is what I do regardless, right? Like I, I do the work. That author I was telling you about earlier, Stephen Pressfield, his books are very much around this this exact scene. I'm certain that if you were to read his books and that book you're telling me about, there'd be very common elements. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is, this guy's just talking about, you know, basketball. He's talking about how Michael Jordan would say like, all right, after the big game, what time are we working out tomorrow? You know, six, seven or eight, you know, and it didn't matter if he had 
won the game or lost the game. He said, what time are we working out tomorrow morning? And it's like, God. And then, you know, he must have just, he must have been tired. I can only imagine how he must have been tired. But in his mind, there was something that didn't let him quit. And that's, um, I don't think that's unique to Michael Jordan. No. I think that's something that we can all aspire. You know, Michael Jordan's the archetype. But we can all aspire to not give up, you know, not say, hey, like, I'm going to kick back and, you know, eat cake today, you know, or, or, you know, just watch TVs, you know, Netflix and chill. It's like, hey, I had the big concert last night. Like, what's next? Like, I'm, you know, I'm just practicing today. I don't know what's next, but I practice because I practice, you know. I I love it. I want to talk a little bit about what you were saying earlier. You, for many years of your life, wanted this job. You achieved the job. Yeah. And then... You've got the loss and then you've got the crisis of identity. At what point do you kind of come out the other end and say, I'm okay. I'm, 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 nothing was actually taken from me. Does that happen quickly for you? Because for me, it took six months. Yeah. Well, it hurts, right? I mean, there's like, there's, it's a grief, right? It's, um, there's loss. And I think if you don't allow yourself to feel that, I think you're, um, you're stuffing that and you're not dealing with it and you're, you know, ignoring that, you know, this thing you really cared about. Yeah. I mean, there's no other way to put that. Like you invested a lot to get there. You cared a lot about it and you cared maybe so much that you were afraid that it was going to get, you know, taken from you or you'd lose it. And then it happened and it, you lost it. And then there's, you know, the stages of grief would be anger, you know, denial, you know, um, and then eventually, you know, um, acceptance. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think the biggest thing that I can take out of it is like this happened and it it doesn't always have to happen because of me. It can happen to me, you know, but if you just say like, hey, this happened now, like, let's just let's forgive ourselves. And that's the hardest part is like, hey, I'm going to forgive me, David Cooper, for not staying in the Chicago Symphony, even after that's something that I really wanted to do. But also saying like, hey, like life doesn't end because I'm not in the Chicago Symphony. Yeah. And if I am constantly holding on to this resentment, this hurt, it's um, not allowing me. It's keeping me from, you know, there's a quote that's keeping me from the sunlight of the spirit. And what I truly mean by that is like the ability to be happy, the ability to enjoy the moment. Right. It's like this. And, you know, I get to see my daughter when she hears music dancing or singing along. And if I'm so upset about what was done, I can miss those moments, those beautiful moments. I cannot live and I get to go to a place that's sunny. It's sunny in, in January. It's sunny in February. It's like, oh my God, I'm like living by the beach. I get to go swim in the ocean. Have you lived in the West Coast any in a climate like that before? Or? I lived in, in Washington State, man. And I lived in Vancouver Island. Not quite the same as LA though. Not the same. I mean, like this is like, I get to go play in the beach, man. I get to go like do what I love. I get to go in the water. I get to go hiking in the mountains. Don't tell me you surf. I'm too Jewish to surf. I, I, don't, I don't fuck with that. <laughs> I don't surf well. Okay, good. I do. Um, I do love being in the water. I like to swim, and I, I'm looking forward to you know pursuing that more, and you know maybe going you know down the road. Maybe my daughter learns how to swim in the ocean. Maybe my daughter learns how to surf. Maybe we go hiking together. 
Maybe we go learn how to scuba dive. And all of a sudden we take a negative thing and you, you're telling me all the positives. Every Next time something shitty happens to me, I'm just going to call you that day. I'm going to have you on speed dial. One thing you said, though, is when you achieve these things that you work so hard for, how does it feel? Because I sort of use, I use the cliche, everywhere you go, there you are. Everywhere you go, there you are. So how does it feel when you work so hard? Because you don't really feel that different. So then why do you feel so bad when it gets taken away from you? It's kind of a perverse thing. My thought is it's a fear that I'm A, not good enough. Like it plays into that little voice deep down inside that says you're not good enough. Not so little for me, but I know the voice. Yeah. And then the other part is, is that like it says like, hey, maybe this is this is going to happen again, you know, which is like, hey, this is painful and it's just like touching a hot stove i don't want to touch that stove again but the the bigger voice needs to be hope and a faith right like hope that i can you know i can trust people again i can love people again right like i can say that this isn't the same situation just because i'm going into the same position right it's not the same people it's not the same organization not the same town not the same history and they deserve a fresh chance just like I deserve a fresh chance. Absolutely. And the faith that as long as I keep working hard and I keep, I keep trying to improve myself, that I will have enough today. I will be taken care of today. And it's like that fear of the future and that regret of the past, right? Like if I have one foot in the future, one foot in yesterday, I'm pissing all over today. <laughs> and I just need to be... You know, my head and my feet need to be in the same room. The person you should compare yourself to is who you were yesterday. Yeah. And if you keep doing the work, you're by definition going to be better than you were yesterday. So you'll always be happy with who you are, right? Yeah. You know, I just know that the person I am today is not the person I'll be in two weeks. Yeah. Like, I keep progressing and I keep learning and I keep growing. And uh, if I'm angry at myself today... I'm angry at the wrong person because that's not who I'll be in two weeks. David, we better wrap this up. My friend, it's so good to see you. Um, I just, I wish I could reach to the screen right now and just give you the biggest hug. I'm going to see you in LA or in San Francisco because it seems like at this point in time, who knows what will happen? Those are two likely outcomes for you. Yeah. Well, I'm definitely heading to LA in the fall and uh, anything else more will be revealed. But the, the, Proof is in the pudding. Can I know I don't know you that well. I know I've talked to you, what, 10 times, but I, I do love you, David. I appreciate you taking the time. Dude, I love you too, man. I was The reason I was like, I don't know you that well, because I was worried about being rejected when I told you I loved you. Oh, man, seriously, like, that's, it's, uh, it's a vulnerable thing to say, because you always hope you hear it back. But, <laughs> you know, I think the feeling is mutual, man. It's like, you know, you just feel that when you talk with a person. And when you say you love me, you mean about the same amount as your wife and child, right? You're the exact same kind of love. That's, is that, am I accurate with that? <laughs> there you go. I love how you just always take a moment. You just like, you, you like never cease to amaze me with laughter. <laughs> David, thanks for your time, man. Dude, it's so good to see you. And uh, look forward to our next conversation, man. Me too.